What the hell just happened? The focus of this podcast is to help, educate, and empower survivors of narcissistic abuse, domestic abuse, and intimate partner violence. The survivor stories shared here chronicle what the hell just happened to them and how they were able to heal, grow, and thrive. Many victims of this kind of insidious psychological, emotional, and even physical abuse are left reeling after the relationships end, wondering if they're crazy and responsible for what's happened. I hear you, I see you, and I believe you. You're not alone, you're not crazy, and you're not to blame. Let's talk about what the hell just happened and discover how to heal, grow, and thrive. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're speaking with Leslie Vaughn, a licensed professional counselor associate, narcissistic abuse specialist, phase three brain spotting practitioner, and a certified trauma professional. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Thank you. Glad to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about your history, um, your experience with narcissistic abuse? Well, it started out with my father. Um, He was a a narcissist. And um, I didn't realize that um, I had two other family members, um, two half-sisters of mine, that were also narcissists. I didn't find this out until um, until my mom passed away. My mom was, uh, she actually um, gave me a secure attachment. So I'm glad I had that at least. Um, She passed away in 2009. Um, My dad found a new family and a new supply. And when he got remarried, he attacked me. And that's when my whole world changed. And I thought it already changed in 2009 when my mom passed because I was really, really close to my mom. What was it like? um, I know you said later on that there was a point where he attacked you and kind of it changed your whole world. But what was it like growing up in that dynamic um, as a young child with a narcissistic father? I didn't even really realize. I think I kind of... um, made up kind of a relationship in my head because I thought he loved me, but I didn't actually feel it when I think back. I think I kind of fooled myself in order to survive it. He was an alcoholic. I had to deal with that. And I thought that was the main problem. Um, so it, for me, since I thought that was the main problem, it was like growing up with two fathers, my sober father and my alcohol-induced father, and that was really confusing, and I think led me to have anxious attachment as an adult. I have not had a real relationship. Uh, Well, I say that. I was married, not legally, but we were married, and then I lost him. A lot of loss in my life. It was confusing. It was... There were times where I was golden child, which is termed um, kind of the favorite kind of 
the child, the father or parent puts all their hopes and dreams into this one child that they deem that models all the qualities. I had two older sisters that severed ties with the family when I was around nine. Um, That's a long, complicated story. It's not as simple as that, but I'll put it kind of simply for time constraints. So fast forward a little bit. Um, It sounds like, you know, a lot of chaos in childhood, lots of waiting for the other shoe to drop with your father's behavior, walking around on eggshells around him. Let's talk about kind of as you got into um, your young adulthood, how did your family dynamic kind of play out as you started forming adult relationships? I thought long and hard about this. There is one thing I should mention that I nearly died when I was 20 in a car accident that has rendered me paraplegic. And I've been paraplegic since I was 20, so about almost 26 years now. And that plays in a role because then my father choked me when he got married. And I know I'm, I'm sorry, I'm nervous. And this is the first time I publicly talked about this. It's It's really hard. It's okay. So let's start with the car accident. So um, you had a traumatic injury left you paralyzed they thought I wasn't gonna survive I was in a coma for two weeks and um, for the first three days they told everybody that um any night I made it through was good night yeah difficult and then they came in two weeks later told my parent because I made it over those three days they said I was gonna survive but they didn't think I was ever gonna regain consciousness so they came in and told my parents to go ahead and start looking for long-term care in a nursing home for me because even if I did regain consciousness that I would be um, in a, per, a persistent vegetative state and need round-the-clock care. Someone would need to feed and clothe me and all that. And here I am. <laughs> I have a master's degree. I almost have a second master's degree in Florida, but I got my master's degree in 2011. After my mom died, I went back, like quit college to take care of her. She was when she was dying. Yeah. So just to back up to the the in, the car injury, the car accident injury, and they didn't think you were going to survive. You survived through the first three. Then they thought, you know, traumatic brain injury, she's going to be comatose or vegetative state, but you proved them wrong. The very next day after they came in and told my parents, I cleared (laughs) that like the very next day, it was very much a miracle. I had to move back home. My parents had to both take care of me at the time. Yeah, a lot of physical challenges, dealing with Mm -hmm. being handicapped, I'm sure, paraplegic, um, self-care, learning how to do that. Oh. Yeah, I went back six months post-injury. It was really important. I think that's what helped save my brain, too. Yeah. And then you're recovering from that, but you're living at home with your father and your mother at this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then your mother becomes ill. 
Yeah, but I mean, I moved back out. I transferred to university, graduated, all that. I was working um, in my practicum for my master's degree. Mm-hmm. At the time, she she got diagnosed um, in August of 2009, 2009 um, and died seven weeks later. So it was, it was pretty quick. So I dropped out. My mom was really mad. She's like, I don't want you to, I said, I only have one mom and I don't regret it because I went back the next semester and and completed everything because all I had left was practicum and an internship. Yeah. But you spent that time with your mother. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a fast that's a fast way to go. That's um, to find out and then pass seven weeks later. It's really kind of shocking to the senses how quickly you lost her. Um, and then after that, um, did you get married? At, was your marriage after that or? Oh, um, uh, that was. Because, well, in 2011, I moved to Florida. I don't really know why I did. I mean, I was drowning in all the memories of my mom. It was really, really difficult. It was That was a hugely traumatic experience for me. And so I moved. I have a, um, a friend who is like a non-biological sister out there. And I moved closer to her. And then because the licensure requirements are different, I attended school there. And then I took care of my husband who was dying. We didn't know it at the time. That was another trauma because I couldn't wake him up off the couch one day. Organ failure. In the meantime of all this, my dad met and married another woman in 2014 I met my husband in 2016 in Florida. In 2017, my father passed, my 18-year-old cat passed, and then my husband passed all within a six-month period of time. Mm. And then I moved back to Texas to be closer to my biological sister, who ended up being a covert narcissist. And I ended all ties with her in 2020. How did you realize that she was a covert narcissist? There was a lot of instances where I couldn't figure out because covert narcissism does not present as overt as the grandiose that we all think of. Covert is more passive aggressive. They have quieter rages. I noticed that friends we had in common all of a sudden had problems with me. A friend of mine, she took out to dinner to try to turn her against me. I didn't learn about this until a year and a half later in 2020. I was taking a lot of classes. See, I passed my boards in 2019 and then COVID happened. So no one was looking. So I decided because my last um, college classes were in, in 2015, I said, I've got to kind of up my resume a little bit. So I started taking some certifications and I took a personality disorders. I already knew that my father was a narcissist, but then I learned the term covert and I learned malignant narcissism. My middle 
sister um, was a malignant narcissist. She was physically abusive to me as a child and um, even tried to drown me when I was eight and she was 16. Hmm. And then she was not allowed to be at home alone with me and spent time in, in a mental health facility for two years. Shortly after that, my middle sister uh, or my eldest sister pulled her off of me but then gaslighted me and told me that th- that didn't happen, but I knew that it did. Hmm. She admitted to me that it did happen when I was 20 after my car accident. So when I heard the term covert, I went, oh, that's what that is. That's what that is. Because I had been gaslit when I was healing in 2020 um, from 2017, the three major deaths I don't have any children. And then I had the 18 year old cat. I watched being born. It was the longest I'd ever had a cat. And that was really, really that alone <laughs> would have been really traumatic. And then I had my father, which I had confusing thoughts about him passing. Um, he was trying to Hoover me shortly before he passed. That's what made it even more confusing. I didn't realize it. I thought he wanted me back in his life. And then I learned the term hoovering and I just realized it just a few months ago that that's what he was doing. As anyone who has had a narcissist in their life die, it's very hard, confusing grief. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes um, people are like, well, they died and they're fine with it. Or at least they tell themselves they are. I don't know. With me, I'm not glad he died. But I am glad he's not here to hurt me anymore. Yeah, I could understand I can say that. That. Yeah. that took a lot of years to come to that realization. Yeah, I could see how it would be mixed. I know from, mm-hmm. from my own perspective, uh, my mother is getting older and I often think about what's going to happen when she passes away. Um, so I'm preparing myself. <laughs> It's hard. And we have all these societal pressures along with that. And I find that also when clients come in to see me and I am not one to do any like toxic positivity. I'm like, whatever you feel is valid and is what's right for you. However you have to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of judgment in society. I think, especially over the parental um, relationships and mm-hmm. um, a lot of shame placed on children if there's no contact or if there is mm-hmm. a you know stressed relationship with the parents you know there's guilting and you know oh but it's your mother or oh but it's you know you only have one father and you're gonna regret this when they're dead and all of that pressure oh, yeah. put mm-hmm. on to um, to have a relationship that never existed, you know. To exactly, yeah, to exactly. If you've never been through this type of abuse, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's and um, yeah. There's a lot of shame in society, and I'm trying to one person at a time de-shame that. Yeah, yeah. Because I did hear if they wanted to be talked about nicely 
after they passed or behind their back or whatever, then, well, they would have treated you better. But then that goes into the whole narcissists are wounded too. And that, you know, yeah. Well, I think there's a level of compassion that we can have for that little child that was in them that was wounded, but not excuse the abusive behavior. And yes, I often look at it as, you know, they're, they don't have the capacity or capability to have a healthy attachment and provide Mm -hmm. the unconditional love the way a parent really should be for a child um, to take care of their emotional needs and, and be present. And, you know, going back to and trying to form that healthy attachment is like going back to an empty well that's never had water in it and expecting it to suddenly have be be full with water um just because society says it's supposed to be this way and you know you can see by somebody's behavior whether you need to pathologize it as this or that or whatever it's hurtful it's abusive you know the healthiest thing in in some people's lives is to cut that contact and not have that relationship just out of safety concerns and like you said if you haven't gone through it it's really impossible to conceptualize how um someone would would need to set up some strict boundaries around that kind of relationship or lack of relationship yeah yes it's hard to navigate but i do want to make you made an excellent point you can have compassion and i do have compassion as another human being to another human being but yeah it does not negate nor excuse any type of abuse that's occurred so you realize that your sister was a covert narcissist it kind of lined up the the behaviors were were lining up with what you were learning what that was and what did you do Well, um, after my friend told me what she had done and it it was lies and I've since learned that it's called a smear campaign and that's what they do when they lose control. Although the smear campaign I learned had been going on for about a decade before I had another friend tell me some other things. I was like, wow. But when you're in it, you think no one else sees this, you know, because the, the narcissist pulls on this, puts on a mask. Yeah. And you think, oh, no one's going to believe me. They seem so nice and so caring. And no, what I did, because I already knew that there was no, there was no confronting this. There was no close. There was not going to be a closure. I always tell my clients, consider the abuse and the disrespect as the closure because you're not going to get it in a normal, healthy relationship. A lot of times you can go on your separate ways and go, hey, this is what happened and fine. And then there's there's that closure. You're not going to get that with a narcissist. Um, They are um, incapable of self-reflection and admitting any type of wrongdoing by them. All of it is your fault. I knew it would all be turned on me. In fact, I know through another connection that she is 
saying that we had a falling out. Luckily, this other friend believe, believes me because this other friend has been friends with me since we were in middle school together. So she knows me very well. She said, we've had a falling out. No, what I did was the night my other friend told me what was going on, I immediately blocked on my phone and then went systematically through all social media platforms and just blocked her. Yeah. And didn't say a word and walked away from that. I have not talked to her since. Yeah. It's interesting what you mentioned there about the smear campaign going on for close to a decade before the end of the relationship. And that's so common. I've heard that quite a bit. Um, because I think we sometimes think about that as part of the response to the, to the no contact or the response to the ending of the relationship or the final discard, you know, and then they come out with this big smear campaign because they can no longer control you. They want to control the narrative. And then, then this big smear campaign comes out, but when in actuality they're working on everybody in your life triangulating those relationships mm-hmm. um, and really working to smear you years ahead of time. They know. Oh, yeah. They know eventually, you know, that this is going to, this relationship is going to end. So they have to constantly be in charge of that narrative and in control of how others perceive you. Um, and also as a, as a form of, um, I think isolation, you know, this is a way to absolutely isolate, if they can convince people to not, you know, side with you or to think that you're crazy or to think what, you know, believe whatever smear they're spinning or tale they're telling, um, it does further isolate you. It it um, soils those relationships that those that could be supportive in your life way before you're ever going to need them. You know, they're mm-hmm. kind of getting in there and undermining any healthy it's- relationship that you have. It's it's very purpose driven um, when you look back and reflect on it. So it's it was kind of interesting to hear you say that as well. So after you went no contact, was there a point where, you know, did you go through the breaking of a trauma bond and kind of realizing how you did have trauma because of narcissistic abuse and you'd been trained in, you know, CBT kind of therapies and whatnot, but where did you kind of get to the point where you realized that you had trauma and that there was a different approach that was perhaps needed for that? Oh, actually, yeah. When I was first counseling, I was very cognitive heavy. Um, And then I found Caroline Strawson, started following her, and then she started advertising her narcissistic abuse certification. And I went, Oh, I need to do that was when I first started wanting to be a counselor. I wanted to be a counselor when I was first hurt, when I was first, um, became a wheelchair user. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find a therapist that looked like me and I couldn't find me. I found one actually oddly at the university of North Texas where I graduated from, Mm -hmm. there was a quadriplegic, 
um, counselor, their head of the counseling department, Dr. Randy Cox. And um, I thought I could fit that niche. And then, um, then I learned and figured out all about the narcissistic abuse that I went there. And I went, oh, my gosh, I could do that as well. And that actually fit nicely in the trauma niche that, that I love. I love to help people through trauma to know that they are not, this isn't a life sentence. We can turn it around. And when I started, let me go back to um, Caroline's narcissistic abuse and I learned all about polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve and how much like 80 I've heard varying reports from 80 percent to 95 percent of all your processing is in the subconscious part of your brain in the limbic system and I went that's it and it changed the way I counsel it changed the way I healed there's so much that doesn't trigger me emotionally. I've been able to rewire my brain. I've been rewired, uh, rewiring my nervous system. And I'm just like, now I want to tell everybody <laughs> and pass this far and wide. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's- we do so much little processing in the cognitive prefrontal cortex of our brains. It's amazing. Yeah. I think I've heard it said you can't um, think your way out of trauma. You, you can't, can't talk your way out of trauma either. Way out. Yeah. And it has to be pra- practiced somatically, rewiring, mm-hmm. um, internal family systems work, that sort of thing. Yep. Um, so I too went through Caroline's course and um, went through several of her courses. But yeah, so bringing that kind of holistically into your practice and being able to help others is kind of just an amazing, um, you know, thing that you're doing to raise, you know, not just raise awareness, but actually help others in their healing journeys. I find that so many survivors are um, just codependent enough that they do want to really help others and um it's funny where you were saying you know or poignant not funny but poignant in how you were saying you wanted a therapist like you and I think that so many um coaches especially in Caroline's programs I hear them saying over and over and over again that they were having a hard time finding someone to help them with their healing. And they literally went, dove into the training to become their own healer, their self healing Mm -hmm. themselves. And I find that it's fascinating that so many of us kind of come into it from that perspective of that. We end up just wanting to help people who have gone through what we've gone (laughs) through and the similar experiences. um, We know how isolating it is. Yeah. Absolutely. And how difficult it is to deal with the shame, the guilt, the anger, you know, all of the phases of um, the grief, all of the different protector parts that come up, you know, to just keep mm-hmm. just trying to keep us safe. No, I know a couple protector parts that came up as we were speaking. Yeah. One part came, I'm like, I, I want to stop this. I, I don't like this. It's uncomfortable. And I wanted to run away. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, no, 
this is fine. We are safe. We are not react because I know I'm reacting to a perception of danger that it's not okay to be me. It's not okay to say my story. Yeah. Be visible. I think as children, um, specifically children who had fathers that would rage that there was that level of chaos and unpredictability of you didn't know who Mm -hmm. was going to show up. We're really wired to stay small and um, constant hypervigilance of, you know, don't be noticed, stay small, people pleasing to keep them calm so that you wouldn't get that explosive, abusive personality showing up in your life. And um, I see that a lot with fellow, you know, survivors that um, we really carry that with us somatically in our bodies um, until we start to heal and release those traumas. That's our kind of our autonomic response to to cues of danger is stay small, run away, hide. I do want to mention that I really like the title of your podcast. Thank you. As I've had several moments of, like, after my father found his new supply and I was not needed, I mean, I came from feeling really special and he really loved me, too. This was so confusing because when I went to the wedding, he didn't even have a chair out for me, you know, out of the, because there was a backyard wedding and there was just garden chairs around and there wasn't one out for me and he got mad at me for pointing that out like but this is the guy that used to go out of his way to accommodate you know my needs and things like that so it was very shocking it was very what the hell just happened yeah and you know even with my sister it's that cognitive dissonance of you believe them to be you know exactly what you were saying about your father where you know, he was so unpredictable in how he would show up, um, sometimes caring and, and, you know, perhaps that's a love bombing phase that, that you were going through that part of the cycle, but the, yeah. the flip flop. And so in our minds, it is two different people. It's the nice guy and the mean guy. You never know which one's going to show up. You can't reconcile the two, and it just, it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance. Same with your sister. You you have a belief that there is a good person, a nice sister, and a mean sister, and you keep hoping that they're going to show up and meet, you know, meet you at the values that you represent, and show the kindness and compassion that you bring into the world and we expect them to behave like us almost and when they don't it's you know you you constantly our brains are constantly trying to look for solution Mm -hmm. you know we always want to find a solution to something and it's trying to find the rational in something that is completely irrational basically (laughs) I was just about to say, we're trying to rationalize a human being that's irrational. And I have to also tell myself and my clients too, it's like, you're trying to figure this out. And these 
and the narcissist's brains do not work like ours. And it's a really, really hard thing to wrap your head around. And it, you know, and you think your basic family members love you. You, you grow up automatically thinking that. So it's really hard to go, oh, they don't even love themselves. How are they going to love me? That's the other thing that I also, where my compassion comes in is normal, rational, well-adjusted people do not go around destroying other people's lives. They don't go around doing the smear campaign. Right. They don't go around undermining you and gaslighting you. Yeah. That doesn't happen. So these people are not, I say these people, but people with narcissistic tendencies do not think like us and, and, and do not see the world as a really happy place. It's very miserable. Yeah. Yeah. And once you get past the whole, I was abused and this was terrible and kind of move past that part and go, you know, at least I'm able to feel happiness at some point. Yeah. At least I'm able to love and feel all the myriad of emotions that a human being, a normal, a typical, I, I hate the word normal, you just used it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a typical human being can feel. So it, that there's some solace in that. Yeah, that the breaking of the cycle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, once you break the trauma bond, and I'm taking a master class tomorrow with Caroline oh, nice. to learn more about breaking the trauma bond. Nice. More about explaining it. I know how I did it. And it was really time and distance and learning to love myself. And yeah. I'm still in that process too yeah. of learning to love myself. Cause you know, I went through four, let's see, I was 44 when I broke the last contact of not being abused by anybody in my life. Yeah. And I'm 46 now and I'm still adjusting to this wonderful world of, Oh my God, no one's undermining me. And my brain is trying to figure that you're like, Oh yeah, you're fine. You're safe. Yeah. You're supported because all the people in my life are now very well supporting. They see me, they hear me. There's a reciprocation in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, nice. really nice. That's really nice. Absolutely. I, I, my path was not as linear and um, I can remember the breaking of the trauma bond and literally my body in, um, you know, cortisol and adrenaline withdrawal and even how I would participate in trying to stir up or reactivate some something to feel something yes um, that happens and I you know at the point that I was at you know I didn't even have words for what was happening to me and then when I got to the point where I kind of was starting to wake up and understand I'd found some words and gotten some education around what narcissism was and what a trauma bond was and kind of what ga even what gaslighting was then it was like, what the hell just happened? Um, you know, confusion of not only the years and years of abuse, but then that breaking of the trauma bond and how that literally took months and months and months to go through. Probably a good, almost a full year to go through. That. I was... 
I was just about to say, and, and let me tell you the rumination that you go through, the anger, the, the confusion, the, the sorrow and the grief of what you thought was there. That wasn't the, the, I cannot believe someone that I loved. And this goes with partners too. Yeah. Someone I loved could, could just discard me like that. I did the initial discarding, but she emotionally discarded me years and years and years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And the smear and how hurtful the smear campaign is. And you just can't believe it. It's interesting, you know, at the time, too, I I had no um, education around the, you know, what polyvagal theory was, how our nervous system responds to cues of danger. (laughs) And after breaking through some of the physical component of the trauma bond, I really struggled with the anger. of and that sympathetic charge and I didn't know <laughs> enough about the nervous system that my body was actually trying to get through that to reset to get some sort of homeostasis and then there's the shame of you're not allowed to feel a reaction you know you're not allowed to feel this anger push it back down back down into freeze and finding that information and understanding oh there's a reason that uh, like all of this anger just keeps bubbling up and bubbling up and I keep pushing it down and it's bubbling back up and finding that out and just having kind of the self-compassion to let that process and go through that um, was a real game changer and I think that so many um, survivors, yeah, they get stuck in kind of these different phases of ruminating or, or stuck within the angry phase of just they can't get past what was done to them and how upset they are about how this was done to them. And, you know, I knew I wanted to create a podcast when I came up with the, the name of it, What the Hell Just Happened?, um, as a way to also showcase to people that like you were saying that it doesn't have to be a life sentence that you can actually recover from trauma. Um, I didn't want, um, the podcast to focus so much on, you know, the trauma itself, but to hopefully educate and share examples and help educate others that, there's healing that's possible that you actually can release your trauma. You can heal the trauma in your body and go on to feel like you were saying the joy to be open and receptive to joy and gratitude and living your best, you know, possible life. We can be beacons of hope to many others. I feel like this is really important to share because my best friend, because my sister had told her, I do so much for her. I do so much. And, you know, the disabled, the disability comes in. And she was afraid to tell me. And she told me the other day, she's, I was so afraid. She's, but looked you down. 
you are thriving you got your license you've got these certifications behind you you're still striving for more certifications and you've got all these clients and you're doing all this stuff and it's just like it's just amazing and i said and that's what i want to show people yeah that this doesn't have to be your life you can make it better it it doesn't take away the pain and the loss of what's gone on cuz i still feel that i still see other people with their family and like, Oh, but you, you find a different kind of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. You find what makes you happy. Yes. And then you find out I've been trying to fit into this box and I'm trying to fit into what someone else wants from me. And I help a lot of my clients and, and myself, but, but what do I want? I figure out, Oh my gosh, the whole world, a whole wide world is open for me now. That's so amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I don't think that I considered anything for myself until uh, long after the last relationship I had with the narcissist ended, and mm-hmm. and even just asking questions like, "Do I like this? Do I want to do that?" You know, just taking a moment and asking myself if I want to go do something or I want to experience something. And whereas before I would just automatically say yes, I would never say no to anything. And right. I yeah. always operating out of this fear of rejection. So it was always, I had to say yes, please everybody else somehow oh, make, yeah. it, make it work. And, um, never even crossed my mind whether I really, it was something that I really wanted to do or if it's an interest that that I enjoyed. It was just fear of, yeah, that fear of rejection, constantly people pleasing. And here's another thing that I noticed too, that my whole life I had always thought of if, and operated my life from whether they liked me. And it didn't matter if who they were, you know, a partner, a friend, you know, family member. I always operated from uh, how am I going to get them to like me? I never once considered until a few years ago, do I like them? Yeah. Do they bring something to my life? Do they do anything for me? You know, um, in any kind of way, not, not in, you know, in what we would consider selfish, but that's another amazing thing that I've, that still shocks me that, Oh, I can think of, they, you know, if I like them, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, Oh, that shift. You know, like, yeah. That's a shift. That, that's a huge shift. That's a huge shift. Like going from that. I need external validation. I need everyone to like me to, do I even like that person? Yeah. Do I like them? Do I, yeah. Do I want, and it's, um, it's a wonderful feeling to finally find that internal validation inside and to realize that I have a lot of value. I have a lot of worth mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm a really good friend potential or mate potential mm-hmm. or, you know, I have a lot to offer the world mm-hmm. and deciding who I want in my inner circle or who I'm going to distance and keep in my outer circle and making those decisions and setting those boundaries in life 
when often we're raised with no boundaries and no ability going back to, you know, total people pleasing, no ability to reflect and say no to anyone out of the, out of that fear. Yeah. It's living life without operating constantly in a fear triggered trauma response. Mm -hmm. That's, it's a huge shift. It's huge growth. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean I'm not doing everything wrong? Everything's not my fault? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Because you really do. You go through life thinking I'm doing everything wrong. Everything's my fault because you internalize the abuse. Yeah. And they also gaslight you into thinking that you're always wrong. Yeah. Always a failure. Can't do anything Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Minimizing my own accomplishments. I ruin everything. Mm -hmm. I was told that one, that I ruin everything. Oh, yeah, me too. You're too sensitive. I was just joking. Yeah. 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 So you found this purpose, you know, after going through your experience and you now have turned that purpose into kind of your superpower to... Mm-hmm. help others heal and thrive and that is just such a beautiful thing and um so I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us and being on the podcast and if someone wants to get a hold of you to work with you how can they reach you what's the best way to reach you well, I'm licensed in Texas, um, but uh, I am virtual, so I can see anyone in the state of Texas. Um, ejamescounseling.com. Okay. And we'll put you can the, check out my bio there. Okay, great. And we'll put that um, in the show notes so folks can reach out to you and get a hold of you. And thank you so much for being on our podcast today. No problem. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. See you on the next episode. What the Hell Just Happened is a Kick in the Hornet's Nest production created and hosted by me, Laurel Whittier. If you'd like to support the show further, you can share episodes with your friends and family, leave a positive review, and follow What the Hell Just Happened on Instagram. If you're interested in being interviewed on the podcast, please go to wthjh.com to share your story or email me at hello at wthjh.com. If you're in need of healing support, be sure to come and join my free and private Facebook group, Healing Narcissistic Trauma, or drop me an email at hello at HealNarcissisticTrauma.com And please know that you are not alone in any of this. There is a light at the end of the tunnel and you can go from living in survival mode to grow and thrive after the trauma of abuse.